Baldry's beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Keith. Good day, sir. Okay, let's start with uh, Premier David Eby. He was my first guest on yeah, the I show this morning, and he was just back, just back from touring the fire zone yesterday. And we we covered a lot of ground here. Um, let's start first of all with the homes that have burned down in, in the Kelowna region. And I asked him about. Well, you know, he's once again reassuring people: government's got your back. Mm-hmm. We'll be there to help you rebuild. And it's like, tell it to the people in Lytton mm-hmm. who heard that two years ago when their whole town burned down. Yep. And they're still waiting to rebuild. Let's listen to what he had to say on that. I'll get your thoughts. Here's E.B. speaking to me a short time ago. We're already working with the federal government on accessing federal disaster response for British Columbians and uh, and working with them with our provincial supports uh, so that they're there when people are uh, back from their hotels and they're, uh, they're looking at how to rebuild their lives. Uh, that we'll be there with local governments and the federal government uh, and Indigenous governments to support them. Your thoughts? Yeah, so Lytton uh, has basically fallen through the cracks when it comes to rebuild and relief uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which the entire town disappeared. Therefore, its municipal hall disappeared, its records disappeared, its, infra- its sort of infrastructure, civic infrastructure disappeared. And it exposed a flaw in some of the relief programs. The whole structure is based on the municipality sort of being involved in the rebuild and requesting things. If the municipality ceases to exist, it's sort of this gaping hole of just inertia that nothing's happened. Um, and hope, and I, I think there's enough left of West Kelowna that uh, differentiates it from Lytton. Lytton just was almost wiped off the face of the earth, and that didn't happen in West Kelowna. So we've seen other towns of various sizes really get hit by wildfires before. This is like Kelowna got hit in the 2003, the Kelowna Mountain Fire. Um, so if you go to Kelowna Mountain now, you do see everything was rebuilt. But that's a challenge yeah. now because Lytton sticks out like a sore thumb about just, again, nothing being done there for a number of reasons, soil reclamation, um, all sorts of things, federal and, and provincial competing jurisdictions. Arche- archaeological investigations yeah. because they've discovered indigenous artifacts yeah, and stuff. Yeah, it's so. a historical site. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not saying that's not going to happen in West Kelowna, but uh, those are some of the challenges. I don't think it's going to turn into another Lytton, but EB is rightly being asked these questions. How can you prevent this from turning into another Lytton? Uh-huh. And that's the challenge the government's got to face. Okay, well, we'll see what the result is as we follow that going forward. We also talked about the situation in Shoe Swap with the, with, the, with the fire there, and we've heard from the frustrations of some people on the ground saying that they feel that the lockdowns there have been too restrictive. We've heard about people trying to help their neighbors, trying to do convoys of of boats going up the lake mm-hmm. to deliver food and, and supplies and water and, and fuel for generators because people are without power. And a lot of people are unhappy with the government and, and the police here and the way this has been handled. I asked E.B. about that. Here's what he had to say. When people are uh, doing their own thing in the bush, uh, which includes uh, uh, using uh, equipment that firefighters have staged uh, and uh, and deploying that equipment because people know how to use it. They think they're, they're assisting when the firefighters go to find it and it's not there, and they go to use it when it's not there. It puts firefighters at risk. Yeah, so he's referring to um, uh, complaints or concerns being expressed by the RCMP and by the Wildfire Service that equipment that they're using to fight fires is being moved. For, and they're not saying it's stolen. It's just it's being moved for other purposes yeah. by people who think they've got a better handle on the situation. And I think... You know, you can look at this both ways. On the one hand, you've got a sort of a rural population that isn't the most enamored of any government. You know, this is their own self-contained communities in some way, and they do think they know the place better than outside forces, whether it's the RCMP who don't necessarily live there 
or the wildfire service competing against this structure in place that is there to set the rules and to ensure everyone follows it. It's usually not a concern in a lot of areas, but it's become a concern in this area because, again, people, I think, acting totally with good intentions, think they're in a better position to assist their neighbors across the lake who are not in an exclusion zone. They're not in an in a evacuation zone. Some of them are and some of them are not. Yeah, the concern, though, is more the use of the lake. Yeah. You know, where the, the uh, RCMP and the Wildfire Service say we need the lake access for our helicopters to take up water uh, for our uh, use of it rather than the community use, even though it means, you know, the community uh, residents argue, hey, if we're just sh- hugging the shoreline here. We're not going out in the middle of the lake until we cross over to, I think it's Egmont, the little yes. village across the way. Yeah. Um, but it's revealed a source of tension, which, again, you can look at this from both sides. On the one hand, you are supposed to follow orders in ter- of when it comes to evacuations, when it comes to access. You know, as a media person, we don't like some of this stuff. You know, we don't like the fact you're not allowed to be anywhere near the front line. But they're they're arguing, well, it's for safety purposes. We know better. But if you lived in an area for 30 years, you're going to have a counter argument saying, no, we know better. You know, we know this land. We know the communities. We know... We know what to do without endangering ourselves or others, but it's a, it's an interesting balance. Well, it's a very resilient community in a, in a lot of ways, self-sufficient, independent. And there are a lot of people who live in this region who worked in the forest industry mm-hmm. and they know the, they know the forest land, they know the land, they know the back country. So, you know, I, I think in some cases, like I agree with you, I think difficult situation, but I, I think there were some, there were some examples. I, I thought it was clearly a lot of people had a, a reasonable plan in mind to help their neighbors. It seemed you know, reasonable. Global, global News did a great job in that earlier yeah, in the week. So it, it seemed reasonable. I guess, you know, I think it's in those situations, it's more incumbent on the RCMP and other authorities to explain themselves, right? And to say, we know better, you know, yeah. go away. We know better. I don't think that's good enough for the residents. Okay. Um, I also, he also, uh, when I was speaking to EB, he also brought up the name of, um, John Rustad. Wow, what a surprise. Who, who is the leader of the BC Conservative Party, the former unprompted use of John Rustad's name? Isn't that interesting? Because <laughs> now Rustad, you know, he's a Rustad's an interesting guy now because he's he's got a seat in the legislature, a former liberal MLA. Now he's the head of the BC Conservative Party. He's still an MLA. And this guy could do some damage here in any, uh, in BC politics. Any opportunity for David Eby and the New Democrats to to pump Rustad's tires, even if it's through criticism, just to have his name out there, uh, helps them because it hurts the BC United Party trying to get splits that vote. Splits that vote, and Rustad's speaking very much for the rural sort of anti-government point of view, which is a very conservative point of view. And there's, you know, it's a significant part of the population out there, and that's who he's, he's talking to. Right, and he's responding to uh, a statement and a, a video that John Russ had put out yesterday on social media where he said, look, people should have the right to stay and defend their property against a wildfire. Don't be blaming people if they stay behind and they want to help their neighbors, they want to save their home. People should have the right to do that. And listen to E.B. calling him out here. So here is E.B. going after the B.C. Conservative leader here a short time ago. You know, I hear the leader of the Conservatives, John Rustad, out there saying that people need to, uh, that, they, that they should stay and defend their homes if, if that's what they want to do. Uh, I just think it's the wrong approach. I think people have to work as a team. We have to work together to fight these fires. That was what was successful in the Kelowna area. And that's what will be successful in Shuswap and other areas of not a bad issue for John Rustad to jump on. Again, yeah. he's speaking to a fairly conservative group of people who bristle at government control, you know, um, sure. 
sovereign citizens of the uh, rulers of the land. Uh, we don't need the government to tell us what to do. Now, one of the counterarguments to that is when you do stay behind, you do potentially put others in danger because people come looking for you to make sure everyone's safe, yeah. and then suddenly they're in danger. But this this argument, uh, you know, I'm the king of my own house sort of thing, yeah. appeals to a, a group of voters out there. And again, it's interesting, David Eby brings up Rustad's name without any prompting from you. You didn't ask what, him. What are Rustad. you suggesting here? That he's trying to promote the, I, B, the BC Conservative Party? I would never suggest such a thing. No, <laughs> yes. I mean, anytime he can drop Rustad's name into the, into the conversation, yeah. the more profile Rustad gets. You notice he didn't name Kevin Falcon in no. his conversation <laughs> with you, which, you know, no reason, reason to necessarily, but... Uh, he's not going to mention Falcon or the BC United, but don't be surprised if you have other ministers and other guests on where magically, coincidentally, Rustad's name gets dropped in the middle of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, it, it serves the NDP's interest to pump his tires. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, real quickly, uh, the first Republican debate yep. is... Tonight. Tonight. In Milwaukee. Uh, it's either on CNBC or CNN. No Don Trump, so the Ella right. Trump in the room is uh, is not there. Uh, you're going to have, I think it's seven or eight candidates squaring off against each other. And it's going to be interesting. No Trump. Um, I've seen some some pundits think it's a smart thing for Trump to do. What's He's got nothing to gain by going in the debate. He's got like a 40-point lead over his opponents within the within the Republican Party. So he can only go down and... He probably wouldn't do very good. He's he doesn't look to be in great health. So why not just stay away and let his his opponents duke it out? So it's going to be interesting whether a anyone actually watches this thing, whether it has any impact on on voting patterns, both generally in the general population or within the Republican Party itself. So it, the Republican sort of presidential season basically kicks off tonight, and Donald Trump's not in the room, but you can be sure he is in everybody's mind. Right to your phone calls. Arthur on the line, calling from Shoe Swap. Hi, Arthur. Uh, good morning. Uh, really quickly, if the government and BC Wildfire want to work collaboratively with us people on the North Shoe Swap, give us a phone number where we can phone a logistics desk, identify ourselves, tell them our skills, what equipment we have, what we bring to the situation, and then we can be utilized. That's my point. Sounds okay, like what, what have you experienced up there? Like, are people people trying to do that and they're being stopped? Like, what's happening? No, we just don't have that opportunity presented to us. Give us a phone number. Get some people mm-hmm. in logistics to put a database together of who's here, what equipment we've got, what our skill sets are, and put us to work. Okay, thanks. Yeah. thank you for the call. Seems like a reasonable idea. Again, I think there's a lack of communication, it appears to be, certainly the stories we've done and others have done, between the residents and the authorities yeah. uh, in a unique situation where the residents think they are not in danger, they think they've got a plan to help their neighbors, uh, and if it's unacceptable, then it has to be explained why that's unacceptable rather than just saying, it. it you know, we know better. And then or more, we think you're going to steal our stuff. Yeah. You know? more, so a breakdown of communication. So a, a more information being provided to the, the uh, residents there, the better. I mean, we, we had footage of residents just saying, well, we've been told we can't go now. Yeah. You know, they had, they had a, a boat all loaded up with supplies for their yeah. neighbors. And we're told, well, we can, why can't we go? Well, we're just told we can't go. you're not allowed to go in the lake. So, well, explain, give them. I think they're entitled to a little more information and explanation than what they're getting. Yeah. Philip in New West. Hi, Philip. Go ahead. 
Yeah, Mike and Keith. Um, look, I grew up in Australia, and uh, my dad had a, a, a 10-gallon, 5-gallon backpack with a pump thing, uh, and if we saw a fire, he'd stop and go fight it. Um, I think we need to stop um, relying on um, the government so much. We need to help the government, and I would be prepared. I'm 70 years old this week. I'd be prepared to go up to a fire line and contribute. Somebody said to me, oh, well, what if something happened to you? You know, ladies and gentlemen, our whole way of life is at threat. I have grandchildren. I'd like them to have something. If, if it costs me my life to protect our future, so be it. My dad fought for his country. This is probably my way of fighting for my adopted country. All right, Philip, thank well, you for the call. Huh? Uh, there's between 3,500 and 4,500 firefighters on any given day right now. Um, this week, for and there's a huge international component to this, and these are trained firefighters and some specialists. So this week, 200 people are arriving from South Africa. I mean, these are not people who are just say, well, oh, go fight fire. And they're trained. They're trained. You're right. Um, you've got uh, 100 people arriving in, from Mexico. There's already 180 trained firefighters from Mexico on the ground. There's 100 from Costa Rica. There's uh, 18 specialists from Australia arriving this week. And these are overhead specialists. They're helicopter specialists. They're... They're trained to fight fire from the skies. You've got um, more than 2,000 trained firefighters with the wildfire service. So it's not an issue, I think, of literally bodies fighting the fire. It can be equipment. It can be tactics. Um, and it's not just citizens going out there with, with a few gallons now, of water. That said, though, there, there are volunteer fire departments all yep. through British Columbia, and there has been some calls, well, why don't you get some of them more involved? In, well, in the there's, there's 105 municipal fire departments involved right yeah. now, and that's yeah. a lot. I mean, yeah, it there's, is. There's more than 650, they're called structural specialists. I mean, you look at municipal fire departments, they don't fight forest fires. They fight fires. Structural build, fires. They fight structural fires. So yeah. There's a lot of structural fires associated with these fires. So they're put in charge of structural fires, and they were doing a lot of that in West, West Kelowna. Yeah. The, the wildfire specialists are trained to go into the forest and literally fight fires that involve trees and fields and forests. Uh, so it's, and they're trying to work together. So it's an unprecedented sort of joint effort. Dave and Mission. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hey, uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Keith. Hey, uh, when you were interviewing David Eby there, I, I just caught the tail end of it when you were talking to him when you were playing it for Keith. But once again, another political word salad where he didn't answer your question. Uh and I'm pretty sure when he said that the, the, the province has your back and we're going to make it, we're going to we're going to do do right by you. I'm pretty sure I could hear a collective laugh all throughout the province last night when uh, when when you guys played that on on uh, global because past experience has shown that the, the province isn't going to have their back and these people are going to be left to their own devices to clean up the mess and go on with their lives. Thank, thank you, Dave. Well, I mean, we pointed, I pointed out to EB that the same things were said to people in Lytton mm. over two years ago. Your thoughts? Yeah, seconds. no, we've seen these huge climate events expose some of the shortfalls in some of the relief programs, whether it was the floods, yeah. if you recall. I mean, there was some criticism in the Fraser Valley that some of the relief yeah. wasn't happening fast enough. Lytton, hopefully, is an anomaly. I mean, that was an extraordinary situation. So, again, people are going to be scrutinizing we'll what happens in West Kelowna, how fast this rebuild can be done, how fast the relief programs can kick in.